Contented Media presents Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto, an original podcast series with Mark Hunter and Arthur Van Pelt. Hello and welcome back to Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto, the podcast that sifts through the murky waters of Craig Wright's claim to be Bitcoin's creator in the search for nuggets of gold that make this worth getting out of bed for. As usual, I'm joined by my colleague and fellow detective Arthur Van Pelt. Arthur, did you have a nice month away from the rigours of the podcast? Yeah, Mark, I certainly did. Uh, Although nice is maybe not the word I would use at the moment, as it was a bit emotional too. There's a lot going on in my private and professional life uh, these days. For example, my mom, actually my stepmom, but since she was with my father for some 40 years already, we simply call her mom. She passed away in April, so I needed to be there for my father and brother, of course. Mm -hmm. No worries uh, for me or our family, though. My mom died uh, a natural death in peace. And it was a great time uh, for bonding with the family again, uh, to be there for people who need it most. Mm -hmm. So when you suggested uh, taking a break because there wasn't much news anyway, it was almost as if you uh, Mm -hmm. unknowingly anticipated some turmoil uh, on the other side of the pond. Well, I'm not Nostradamus. um, and really sorry to hear that. But um, hopefully our little podcast can at least raise a smile for the time being. Yeah, no worries, Mark. It always does. Excellent stuff. So let's crack on. Listeners to our March episode will know that Craig Wright has had one legal target up his sleeve for some time, a real bee in his bonnet by the name of Coinbase. Wright has been threatening Coinbase with legal action for some years, having labelled them as one of the beneficiaries of the hostile takeover of Bitcoin that was perpetrated by Mastercard and the Digital Currency Group in the early 2010s. For more on this, see our bonus episode, Writing History. As many of you will already know, Wright and his flunkies believe that the version of Bitcoin that uses the BTC ticker does not represent the Bitcoin as expressed in the Bitcoin white paper. This, he claims, is realised only in his version of Bitcoin, which of course goes by the ticker BSV. To this end, after multiple warnings and threats, Wright this month finally played his hand, hitting Coinbase and another exchange, Kraken, with a lawsuit that accuses the two companies of infringement of his intellectual property. According to Wright's legal representatives Ontier, otherwise referred to as Alak Pwoda, as long as Calvin's paying will do anything, Coinbase and Kraken have been misrepresenting that the digital asset Bitcoin Core, BTC, is Bitcoin. With the actual filing unavailable to the public, all we have to go on is the press release that accompanied the filing, which says The claimants, which in this case are Wright International Investments and Wright International Investments UK Limited, assert that these exchanges and others have been trading and encouraging investors and consumers to trade and invest in BTC by passing off that asset as Bitcoin, despite it only having been created in 2017 as a software implementation which is different from and separate to the Bitcoin protocol which Dr. Craig Wright fixed when he first created the electronic cash system more than 13 years ago. The only digital asset that remains true to the original Bitcoin protocol is Bitcoin Satoshi Vision, BSV, which is the software implementation of the original Bitcoin protocol. 
the claimants contend that this misrepresentation by Coinbase and Kraken has led to confusion among digital currency asset holders as to the authenticity of the assets many have purchased and traded in. The claimants seek an injunction restraining the defendants from promoting BTC as Bitcoin through improper use of the Bitcoin sign or any visually similar sign or wording. Arthur, there is so much to unpack here. Um, we know the rationale behind Wright's claim, and we know that he wants the courts to rule that BTC isn't Bitcoin. But what is he hoping to be able to do with such a ruling? Since Craig Wright started to cosplay uh, Satoshi in 2014, his only goal with this cosplay is to keep the money flowing into his uh, direction. You have to see this lawsuit in, in the same light, if you ask me. Kelvin Air, and there he is again, uh, is since 2015 sponsoring every step that Craig is making with the hopes of becoming tremendously wealthy in the process. So as long as Craig is showing to Kelvin that he is trying to get himself reinstated as Satoshi with his failing uh, altcoin BSV as the true Bitcoin, Kelvin is swallowing it like candy and meanwhile throwing more millions at Craig. Ultimately, what Craig hopes is that his Bitcoin version will get the ticker BTC and is reinstated as the real Bitcoin and is traded as such on these uh, exchanges like uh, Coinbase and Kraken. But will this work out? Nah. <laughs> so if he has his way then, the BTC ticker will apply to his BSV project rather than what the rest of the crypto world knows as Bitcoin. Is that right? Yeah, I, th I think Crank aims for a forced by court order uh, rebrand of the real Bitcoin, BTC, to say Bitcoin Core uh, with the ticker, say, yeah, B Core or something, followed by an immediate rebrand of BSV to Bitcoin with the ticker BTC. That's what I understand from his uh, Slack rants uh, so far, at least. Mm -hmm. Okay. Taking a step back then, let's look at how things have got this far. Bitcoin launched in 2009 and then forked into Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash in 2017, with Craig Wright claiming that Bitcoin Cash was, of the two, the real incarnation of Bitcoin. This fork was due to the fallout over the implementation of a Bitcoin protocol upgrade called Segregated Witness, or SegWit, which Wright famously claimed in November 2018 would lead to the discovery of a fatal flaw in Bitcoin that would destroy it entirely in 2019. This, of course, didn't happen. By November 2018, however, Wright was of course shopping around another Bitcoin fork, Bitcoin SV, which he said had taken over from Bitcoin Cash as the real Bitcoin after the two split following ideological differences with Bitcoin Cash supremo Roger Ver. The reason Wright felt able to claim this was because he had stripped the Bitcoin SV code right back to how Bitcoin was at its inception in 2009, barring one crucial change, which he said made his version of Bitcoin the purest out there. The crucial change he made was to remove the one megabyte block size cap that had been in place at Bitcoin's launch. And Arthur, the history of how this block size cap came about is quite important, isn't it? Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, let's start with what uh, Bitcoin original gangster uh, Ray Dillinger, and he's probably better known under his nick uh, Credit in the Bitcoin community, remembers of the early days. In February 2015, he said this. For what it's worth, I'm the guy who went over the blockchain stuff in Satoshi's first cut of the Bitcoin code. Satoshi didn't have a one megabyte limit in it. The limit was originally Hal Finney's idea. Both Satoshi and I objected that it wouldn't scale at one megabyte. Hal, however, was concerned about a potential DOS attack though, and after discussion, Satoshi agreed. The one megabyte limit was there by the time Bitcoin launched. And we all remember that it was in um, January 2009. 
But all three of us agreed that one megabyte had to be temporary because it would never scale. Several attempted abuses of the blockchain under the one megabyte limit have proved how right about needing the limit, at least for launching purposes. A lot of people wanted to piggyback extraneous information onto the blockchain and before miners and the community generally realized that blockchain space was a valuable resource, they would have allowed it. The blockchain would probably be several times as big a download now if that limit hadn't been in place because it would have had a lot of random one Satoshi transactions that exist only to encode information for altcoins, etc. So Craig Wright's argument then is that he, as Satoshi Nakamoto, wanted unlimited scaling from the very start and was only talked down by Hal Finney. If we're to take Dillinger at his word, this cap was supposed to be removed at some point in the future, and yet Satoshi himself amended the Bitcoin code in July 2010 to ensure that miners could never create blocks bigger than one megabyte. Also, in October 2010, Satoshi seemed to be supportive of, of continuing with the cap, replying to someone on Bitcoin Talk with regard to a block size increase with, we can phase in a change later if we get closer to needing it. This suggests that he was supportive of steady upgrades without actually stipulating the conditions that would require one. Am I right in thinking that, Arthur? Yeah, this is exactly how I interpret uh, these things around the block size too. For Satoshi, scaling by raising the block size should only be done when needed. So raising the block size was not the full and only scaling solution, if you ask me. And putting this subject into further context, at some point Satoshi Nakamoto explained to Mike Hearn, when they discussed something called N-lock time in the Bitcoin system, that intermediate transactions of high-frequency trades do not need to be broadcast. And to cut a long story short here, this can be interpreted as that Satoshi was also a fan of scaling off-chain, with payment channels that did not store all the financial transactions in the Bitcoin blockchain. So it will probably not surprise the listeners that Lightning Network, as one of the main Bitcoin scaling solutions that is currently exploding in use cases and adoption of Bitcoin, has been built in part around this concept by smart contracting on the N-lock time field. On a side note, Satoshi's comments about phasing in later changes fly completely in the face of an October 2021 comment Wright made on Slack where he said, When I created Bitcoin, I specifically noted that the protocol would not change. However, Satoshi literally said the words, we can phase in a change on Bitcoin talk, undermining this claim in a trice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, Arthur, it seems then that Satoshi Nakamoto himself, whatever his early intentions, was sold on the idea of an early block size limit before Bitcoin actually launched, with the potential for steady upgrades if needed. This is problematic for Craig Wright for two reasons. One, he says he is Satoshi, which means he himself agreed and implemented the one megabyte block in the first place. And two, he says that BSV represents Satoshi's vision which it quite clearly doesn't because Satoshi was in favour of the block size cap, at least initially. Or was his Bitcoin talk account conveniently hacked by this point and this was somebody else talking? <laughs> yeah, Craig has indeed uh, spouted a full story uh, a few times about how his, quote unquote, words as uh, Satoshi on the Bitcoin forum have been altered, edited, deleted, whatever, in, uh, in later years. Because, as Craig claims, he never posted on the Bitcoin talk domain, which is where currently the Bitcoin forum is uh, hosted. Well, technically, Craig is correct, as the Bitcoin talk domain didn't exist in the 2008 and, uh, until 2010 era. It was raised only in 2011 after Satoshi, the real one, had left uh, the public eye in December 2010. 
But what Craig forgets is that the current Bitcoin Talk domain contains the exact same Bitcoin forum as it was hosted on the Bitcoin.org domain. Because what happened, Satoshi bought the Bitcoin.org domain in 2008. Then in early 2009, he teamed up with a guy called Martin Malmi, who helped Satoshi with coding Bitcoin and with an overhaul of the Bitcoin website. And that overhaul included the introduction at the end of 2009 of a public forum. And the whole SMF template, including the history of posts, was simply ported forward to the new domain bitcointalk.org with a DNS change and without changing anything in the history of the Bitcoin forum. But to get back to your point, uh, Bark, Craig has one thing that pleads for him. As Credit wrote, both Satoshi and I objected that it wouldn't scale at one megabyte. So it is correct that the block size wasn't meant to stay at one megabyte forever, and it didn't with Bitcoin. Bitcoin has lifted the block size a few times in its history, and we are now on four megabytes. Craig's brainchild BSV took a shortcut to 4 gigabytes uh, recently, uh, however, and BSV is now desperately trying to prove to the world, with a few Kelvin Air sponsored projects like uh, CryptoFights and Fixed Gaming and users dumping uh, thousands of the same dog images in the, in the BSV blockchain, that large blocks uh, actually work. Well, and so far it technically works, kind of. However, it comes with a massive trade-off. BSV has become extremely centralized around a few handfuls of very costly nodes. As it happens, I checked uh, today, they are still on 30 nodes according, I think it was Blockchair where I checked, and only 15 nodes are active on the chain tip. Outstanding work, outstanding work. So back to the Coinbase and Kraken lawsuits. Wright was saying to his Slack group as far back as July 2021 that I hope you don't have Coinbase shares, referring to both Coinbase and Kraken in a post that, surprise, surprise, referenced the fact that they were part of Wright's public enemy number one, COPA. In the post, Wright said, wait until the companies drop it and COPA folds, which could also offer another explanation of why he's gone after Coinbase and Kraken. He thinks, in some twisted way, that COPA will cease to exist if he wins his cases against some of its constituent members. This would, of course, be a very handy way to get out of the massive lawsuit they have filed against him that would, should COPA be successful, disqualify Wright from connecting himself to the name Satoshi Nakamoto in the UK. Wright has talked much and often over the past year or so about the so-called passing off allegation, calling it a deception practiced not just by Bitcoin core developers, but also by companies like Coinbase and Blockstream, with Wright saying that the concept that has been produced would not have worked without the promotion and payments by these individuals. Blockstream is another favoured enemy of Wright because it is chiefly Blockstream developers who have been at the core of implementing Bitcoin code for the last decade or so, introducing developments such as SegWit and the Lightning Network that, according to Wright, significantly vary how the system works and then passing it off as if that was my original protocol. Let's remind ourselves again that it was Satoshi's vision to phase in a change to the Bitcoin blockchain if it was ever needed, and it was he himself who coded the one megabyte mining block cap more than a year after the protocol launched. Wright's threats against Coinbase ramped up in late 2021 and early 2022 as the lawsuit filing apparently drew nearer, saying in November last year that Coinbase already knows my finger is on a big red button, and if they force me to press it, they vanish. Interestingly, he ended that particular post by saying, 
You don't kill the cow, you milk it until it is old, then you create stew. Watch out, Calvin. <laughs> yeah. Ten days after this post, Ontier sent letters to Bitcoin.org, Square, BTC Core, Blockstream, Coinbase, eToro and Kraken, warning them that they were passing off Bitcoin as BTC and that legal action would be forthcoming if the exchanges in question didn't take action to remedy the situation. CoinGeek reported, rather hilariously, that there appeared to be no response from the exchanges, despite claiming that Coinbase has in the past stated that the emergence of Satoshi Nakamoto poses an existential threat to their business. There is a very simple answer to the riddle of why they didn't mention it, but we'll let the BSV supporters work that one out. Around the time the letters were sent out, Wright offered a way out for Coinbase, saying on Slack, if they negotiate a license, list Bitcoin, BSV, they get to exist. If not, we obliterate them. One day after this, he was at it again, for some reason choosing to discuss his negotiation tactics with his Slack group, saying that in such situations he makes a fair offer and then negotiates down, before going full Donald Trump. If I file in court against Coinbase and others, there won't be a settlement. If they negotiate before court, the answer is that I close them. If we end up in court, if they push it that far, the answer is very simple. None of them survive. At the moment, they have a limited opportunity to negotiate. Every day from now on, the offer diminishes. Every day from now on, the cost increases. Today, they can survive and the offer at the moment will cost them very little other than face. Every 24 hours from now will cost them tens of millions of dollars. Every week from now will cost them a fraction of their net worth. When this goes to court, it will cost them their existence. Let them know they have a choice. Let them know that the window of opportunity is about to close. Let them know the noose is already about their neck. Arthur, one question. Who the hell is he talking to? Yeah, these rants are mostly aimed at his uh, little fan club of uh, gullible followers, of course. I'm not a medical professional, but it's pretty obvious to me that Craig Wright, in his heart a very insecure but also shameless person, is suffering from NPD. And NPD, or narcissistic personality disorder, involves a pattern of self-centered, arrogant thinking and behavior, a total lack of empathy and a total lack of consideration for other people, and an excessive need for admiration. So that's why he posts these uh, rants uh, in Slack, to be admired for them. As part of his two-day rant, Wright proclaimed that his prowess was so great that legal action against Coinbase alone would drop its share price to under $50. In fact, it did the opposite, bouncing from $112 on May 2nd, the day before the lawsuit was filed, to $129 two days later. Sometimes you just have to know when to quit. Wright also seemed to predict how Coinbase would find a way round his inevitable victory, saying that they would work to create a fork of Bitcoin that would exist as the old Bitcoin and simply take its place. But don't worry, he's already got his battle plan in place for that. Do you know what happens to companies like Coinbase if they decide to breach a court order by listing a fork designed specifically to violate a court order? If Coinbase chooses not to implement the change, the American government can seize the domain. What happens if they lose their domain and internet access because they've breached a court order? If customers cannot get to an exchange, there won't be an exchange. Without Amazon Web Services, there won't be exchanges. Without domains, there won't be exchanges. Those companies seeking to bypass court orders will cease operation. Exchanges are fiduciaries. Under the changes to banking law, the CEO of an exchange in America is criminally liable 20 to 30 years in prison. 
Before we get too worried for poor old Coinbase, however, let's take a moment to remember what dear old Craig said about the cabal of developers he sued last year. When the developers go to court and state how their actions are not those of fiduciaries, I am going to not only have them sanctioned from lying and misleading, but actively perjuring in front of the judge to deceive the court and seek to implement misjustice and that they are intentionally defrauding the court. As we know, this case was so devoid of merit that it didn't even make it past the first hurdle, so let's not forget to take Wright's rhetoric with a pocket full of salt. Arthur, I presume all the exchanges cowered down before the might of Ontier and bowed to its wishes. Nope. <laughs> of course, we cannot see uh, what's happening in all the boardrooms uh, everywhere. But my firm impression is that uh, literally no one, well, uh, of course, except for his little fan club uh, that shared upon uh, the news, and an even smaller group of uh, followers uh, of this hilarious uh, Fektoshi drama, and I guess we are all members of that group, uh, Mark, uh, we and uh, most <laughs> most of our uh, listeners, but uh, <laughs> we are, we are. That is uh, uh, only patiently waiting for the next uh, forgery debunk or other slip up of the man. But anyway, as I wanted to say, uh, no one is paying attention. And those who do for a bit don't take it too seriously. Craig Wright has built a long string of failed predictions, announcements that were not followed up, promises that were broken, and more serious, he has hardly any court wins. One of our friends in the field, uh, he can be found on Twitter under the handle uh, BTC Kershey. He uh, set up a website about all Craig's legal affairs, which can be found under cswarchive.info. And BTC Kershey found out that uh, while giving Craig uh, the benefit of the doubt in, uh, at, uh, for example, a default judgment uh, with a no-show of the defendant, for example, Cobra Bitcoin and the crime in the 2013 Australian illegal conversion case, for which he now has to pay $143 million anyway, that Craig, with a stretch, he won four cases, he lost seven cases, and no less than 10 cases are still ongoing. And looking at the content and background of these 10 ongoing cases, I have no doubt whatsoever that 80-90% of these cases are going to be court losses uh, for Craig Wright uh, too. Already in November last year, he noticed that he was being ignored and he told his followers in his Slack room, and I will quote, Technically, the letter is a material event. By not making a statement, they are opening themselves to a class action lawsuit and leaving the directors and company officers personally liable for damages. The issue extends to SEC action. As a public company, the failure to report a material event of this size is a felony offense. More, it is significantly large enough that we could push for the delisting from a public exchange and worse. I hope people don't have Coinbase shares. All empty threats, uh, Mark. <laughs> These rants only show how desperate for attention Craig Wright is. Yes, they certainly do. With all the platforms giving Ontier's threats the attention they warranted, i.e. none at all, Wright carried through on his threat and targeted Coinbase and Kraken first, with news breaking on May the 3rd that two companies under his control, remember he's broke so he can't put his name to anything, were suing the two exchanges for passing off BTC as his invention. Wright had clearly expected Coinbase to tell its shareholders right away of the lawsuit, stating during his two-day rant in November last year that Coinbase is technically in default from withholding the SEC-mandated 8K form, it comes with possible felony charges, and the CEO could be banned from operating an exchange or even a public company by not telling the market of this material event. Funny how much of this stuff I know. Arthur, I presume that now Coinbase rushed to inform its investors of the actual lawsuit. Uh, nope. 
They didn't. But indeed, by law, uh, Coinbase needs to inform the shareholders of material facts, as they call it, within four days after they happen. But apparently, this lawsuit, of which Ontier states in their announcement the claims are likely to be worth several hundred billions of pounds, is apparently not considered a material fact uh, by Coinbase so far. Six months and no felony charges later, I'd say it's funny how much of this stuff Craig Wright thinks he knows. Coinbase's flat refusal to even acknowledge the lawsuit, which Wright was clearly hoping for in order to validate his inflated sense of self-importance, really seems to have wound up not just him, but also his supporters, with the usual echo chamber resounding on Twitter. I don't like that Coinbase is hiding the fact that Satoshi is throwing a lawsuit at them if they don't correct the fact BTC no longer resembles Bitcoin, and he has asked that they stop using the name Bitcoin. They haven't even notified the public or their shareholders. Very poor. What really made me laugh about this, though, was that whatever Coinbase did, BSV would have claimed a win. If they reference it publicly, Wright and the BSV camp use that to claim that Wright poses a legitimate threat and that Coinbase is clearly worried. But if they don't mention it, then it's troubling and a sign that Coinbase is so worried that they then mentioned it to their shareholders. Not in a million years where they actually consider that the lawsuit is so irrelevant to Coinbase that it was beneath them to mention. Isn't that just typical of the BSV mindset? Absolutely. Absolutely typical indeed. Of course, CoinGeek reported on this at the time and did so once again once the suits were filed. Coinbase's board of directors has yet to notify their shareholders or the wider market that Dr. Wright followed through with his legal warnings from 2021 and filed a lawsuit against the cryptocurrency exchange. That's because they don't give a shit about it! Following on from this, CoinGeek warned that their lack of proper disclosure of material information could open them up to a potential additional class action lawsuits from their customers, not to mention getting them in hot water with regulators for their lack of proper disclosure. This got the BSV clan very excited and turned them into corporate law experts, even more so when someone spotted a note on Coinbase's Q1 earnings report, which stated that if the exchange went bankrupt, customers' crypto might be considered property of a bankruptcy estate. CoinGeek called this snippet very curious timing, leading to the BSV clan reveling in the notion that the imminent class action lawsuits that will spring from Coinbase not mentioning Wright's ludicrous lawsuit will bring the company to its knees, potentially even before the court case itself does. Arthur, what CoinGeek fails to realise here is that the only Coinbase customers who are minutely concerned that the exchange hasn't mentioned the lawsuit to its shareholders are those with an attachment to BSV, and Coinbase hasn't allowed BSV trading since August 2021. Who exactly are these customers filing class action lawsuits? The only people I can think of is a little group of individuals who didn't withdraw their BCH tokens before November 15, 2018, when BSV split off from BCH. This group had BCH and BSV after the split, but straight after the split, Coinbase properly informed their users, Coinbase does not support purchases or sales of BSV, so customers cannot sell their BSV for fiat currency on Coinbase. They may send the BSV balance to an external wallet following instructions here. So, yeah. But anyway, even if people are teaming up for a class action against Coinbase, and even if a lawyer is willing to take up such a class action case, I don't see it going anywhere. There's no case to be made, if you ask me. No, and it's no surprise that Craig Wright has offered to pay for these class action lawsuits. I mean, no one else wants to be a penny out of pocket supporting that rubbish, do they? Yep. 
Kraken 2 has failed to reference the lawsuit in any of its social media channels, with CoinGeek giving us a taste of why this Exchange 2 has been targeted, saying in a piece on May 6th that its anarchist ideology drove people to dislike BSV. Wright apparently has a particular resentment for Kraken because it delisted BSV in April 2019, around the same time as many other exchanges did, plus the fact that Roger Ver and Mastercard were early investors and Ver is still a shareholder. Yeah, that'll do it. One particular line in CoinGeek's piece stood out to me as being sensationally unself-aware. If the BSV team has made any fraudulent claims, as Kraken also referenced, then no one has been able to prove this either in or out of a court. They couldn't prove it in 2019, and they're still unable to prove it in 2022. Consequently, their tactic has been to simply keep repeating an accusation without it having any basis in fact or reality. Just staggering. The same article once more reinforced the narrative that the entire crypto space is scared of Wright, rather than being really, really bored of him, saying, The delist or cancel campaign against BSV is strong enough to suggest power players in big tech and the blockchain industry think of Dr. Wright often and clearly consider him an existential threat. Clearly. Let's turn to the responses from the BSV community, which is always worth a giggle if nothing else. First, Calvin Eyre, who perpetually fired out on TA's tweet announcing the filing like cannonballs at the Battle of Waterloo. Reuters wasn't safe, nor was Elon Musk, Bloomberg, the Financial Review, USA Today, Bloomberg, again, the Twitter account for the podcast Life Itself, Elon Musk, again, the Financial Times, or Peter Schiff, all of whom received an unwanted dose of Ontier nonsense in their Twitter streams, often in reply to completely unrelated tweets. What was also noticeable was just how wide Air was leaving Wright's quickly closing door of negotiation, saying in three separate instances in one thread, aimed at no one at all, trying to work with Satoshi is the only path forward for crypto, cut a deal to save the innocents that you guys are hurting, and time to cut a deal with Satoshi. A few hours later, when talking about Craig Wright being temporarily banned from LinkedIn, Air said, again, This court case is going to the heart. They know they cannot win and are panicking. They need to cut a deal now. That is the only path forward. Arthur, this aggressive tone is completely undermined by this sudden desperation to cut a deal, isn't it? Where do you think this has come from? I might be wrong here, but my take is that uh, Calvin Air is desperate to see some results after years and years of unfulfilled promises and failed predictions. And there's a plethora of them known in public, from rolling iceberg orders to revealing uh, fatal Bitcoin, lightning networks, segwit flaws, and etc. that would bring uh, Bitcoin down in 2018, 2019, 2020, or otherwise in 2021. But in the background, there might be other worries for Calvin because no Fektoshi patents have ever sold. He is dumping money by the millions in Craig Wright's lawsuits uh, without any substantial return from either the cases or the backup to his loans to Craig, the mythical Tulip Trust coins. Cutting a deal now, instead of running another round of lawsuits that will take another three to five years again to conclude, will bring in the results that Calvin hopes to achieve, his sugar baby being recognized uh, as Satoshi and BSV being the number one token recognized as Bitcoin. One can dream, of course. Air <laughs> also added that they, Coinbase and Kraken, are the first in what will be a series of claims against each of the largest digital currency exchanges designed to prevent future misperceptions as to the true operational nature of Bitcoin. If anyone was in any doubt as to how long Craig Wright can keep this grift going, 
let's just say that I'm going to run out of song titles for these podcast episodes long before he gives up. <laughs> yeah. With the dust now having settled on the initial filing, we'll have to wait for Kraken and Coinbase to file their legal responses to the case, which will undoubtedly be to have them thrown out. Naturally, we'll update you when that happens, but we don't anticipate this being any time soon. On the subject of lawsuits, we also got another couple of snippets regarding rights, let me just check, 243 other ongoing cases. The first was the case we mentioned earlier, where Wright has sued a plethora of developers who he demanded should be made to rewind the blockchain and hand back millions of dollars in coins allegedly taken in the 2020 pineapple hack. Wright, of course, lost this case in March, unless, of course, you're of the BSV persuasion when it's just another move in the 5D chess game Wright is playing. And this month, we had another update, didn't we, Arthur? Yep, we did. On uh, Reddit, we found an update of uh, Reddit user Null C, who is in real life uh, Greg Maxwell, uh, one of the parties in the lawsuit uh, that they also love to call uh, the pineapple hack case, who told the readers, and um, I'll read uh, the full uh, short message of him, update on Wright's vexatious litigation. In the case against the developers, Wright was ordered to pay our costs and permission to appeal was denied. Wright was ordered to pay 75% of our costs overall. This is at the top end of ordinary awards for costs in the UK and 100% of our costs for post-judgment activities. But he can still appeal directly to the appeals court for 40 days. Yeah, to clarify the appeals procedure here, the judge denied Wright permission to appeal the ruling automatically, meaning he has to ask permission to do so. This leave to appeal is filed to the Court of Appeal, with the application heard by a preliminary panel, which will then decide whether an appeal is warranted or not. If it is, the appeal goes to the full appeal court. If it fails, then Wright has done what Calvin Eyre promised he wouldn't do and lost a case. As for the criteria the appeals panel will use to make their decision, they are heavily guided by the rationale the judge gave for refusing to allow the case to proceed in the first place, alongside the means by which she came to the ruling. Now, Often in these situations, appeals panels are looking for contentious decisions or novel points of law that have never been ruled on in the past. However, given that the methodology involved in the judge's decision used mature case law, i.e. things that have precedent, there is a very little chance of Ontier being able to overturn it unless the judge has made a clear and obvious error. Indeed, Wright was given 14 days to appeal, which expired on May the 20th, so assuming he has filed leave to appeal, we should know next month whether he's been successful or not. Arthur, did we get any updates on any more lawsuits this month? Yeah, we did, uh, in fact. Uh, in the Hoddlenot uh, UK uh, libel case, remember, he's also running a lawsuit against Craig Wright in Norway, but this is about uh, the UK case. There was a ruling after a preliminary trial, and I mean the trial on preliminary issues, a few days ago that the full trial will be allowed. This uh, is a little battle in the Grand Court War uh, in the UK that Hoddlenot lost. The preliminary issue is serious harm to Craig Wright. Did that actually happen due to libel by Hoddlenot? But most importantly, does Craig even have a remote chance to prove that serious harm at a full trial? The judge thought at this moment that Craig has a remote chance to prove that. Yes, the bar is really low here. <laughs> so a full trial will happen anyway. So it is my guess somewhere in 2023 looking at uh, how slow uh, things uh, progress. Also, it's not a lawsuit, but maybe something uh, upcoming. We found Craig Wright stating a few days ago, the DMCA takedown notices are about to start. LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, 
if a copy of my white paper remains and they do not close the accounts, I will close them. God will love the law. So this might also end up in lawsuits against a string of new parties that Craig will drag into court. So it appears that Calvin Air still has a budget uh, for this legal nonsense uh, of his uh, sugar baby. One final note before we leave Lawsuit Corner is that Wright's case against Peter McCormack is slated to be heard on May 23rd and 24th, so we should have a verdict in that case and the fallout in June's episode. Remember that Calvin Eyre thinks the trial is only about how much Peter McCormack owes Craig Wright, when in fact it's a full, proper, actual trial for adults which Craig Wright could lose. On to other matters, and in particular, an amusing development in the sphere of N-Chain, Wright's employers and hoarders, sorry, holders, of some 2 million blockchain patents. Now, normally, N-Chain taking on a new member of staff wouldn't be of interest to us, but this one is special. N-Chain AG announced the appointment of Leandro Nunes as Chief Revenue Officer. Mr Nunes has over 20 years of experience in corporate finance, product development and sales. Most recently, he served as Vice President of Product Development and Innovation at Mastercard. Prior to joining Mastercard, Mr Nunes held increasingly senior positions at IBM, with responsibility for leading global teams to drive growth in key areas, including responsibility for the go-to-market plan for blockchain solutions. Arthur, why is this appointment so interesting? Well, because of Mastercard, of course. Brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, many in the BSV uh, realm uh, hold on to the idea that MasterCard is part of the criminal cabal that has successfully taken control of Bitcoin. And I mean the real thing here, the one with the ticker BTC and not the BSV knockoff. So the irony is so high here. MasterCard is infiltrating BSV. <laughs> but allow me to give you and the listeners a brief historical overview about the BSV camp's uh, attitude against MasterCard. In February 2021, CoinGeek oh, Coin I mean, did an article about MasterCard that went along these lines. Will MasterCard support BSV? MasterCard announced that they will directly support select digital currencies in their network. BSV should meet their listing criteria. But then, when it became clear that MasterCard will not support BSV, our friend and well-known Fictoshi apologist Kurt Ruckert did an article on CoinGeek about MasterCard, but the tone had dramatically changed. Listen, the MasterCard Bitcoin conspiracy. Bitcoin was disruptive, so MasterCard muzzled it, using number go up as lubrication to shut down the narrative of Bitcoin being a true fintech revelation, Kurt Ruckert Jr. writes. Then uh, one dives into the actual article, uh, we can find uh, Kurt derailing into a massive conspiracy theory around MasterCard. Before 2015, most developers were unpaid volunteers in the Bitcoin economy, but the value of the project was growing, despite the fact that they were not getting rich, unless they were spending their hard-earned money from their day jobs and buying Bitcoin like any other person. This led to the pursuit of investment, and by 2015, MasterCard led a seed round with Mitt Romney's Bain Capital, Transamerica Ventures, Firstmark Capital, and New York Life to establish a company called Digital Currency Group, led by Silicon Valley darling Barry Silbert. And Silbert stated, being structured as a company versus a fund allows us to evolve with the industry given our permanent capital base and flexible mandate which means that they can be less held down by financial regulations and therefore have more influence over their portfolio companies. 
and I'll continue with my quote, this led to the creation of paid BTC development firm Blockstream. And the rest is history. Their portfolio also includes Lightning Labs, Kraken, Coinbase, BitGo, BitPay, Blockstacks, Coindesk, Circle, Chainalysis, Xapo, and many, many more. Basically, they own over 90% of the public infrastructure for BTC and all of its competitors. With a hegemonic control in 2015, MasterCard was able to shift the narrative of Bitcoin from being a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system and force its users' experience into being unpleasant and occasionally unusable in order to create business opportunities for their other portfolio brands to profit from specialized services to BTC like uh, Lightning Network. Yeah, so there you have it. Mastercard hardly owns a majority share anywhere in these companies. They support both Bitcoin and its competitors like Ripple and Hashgraph. But yeah, they took uh, control of Bitcoin development and have now infiltrated in BSV2. Well, I can't wait to read Kurt's take on that, but haven't come across it yet. No, strangely, he hasn't referenced Mastercard since the appointment, but we do know that he still harbours a huge suspicion of them, going by a tweet he put out the week before, where he said that the payment giant paid for this crazy BTC economy and all the shitcoinery. In addition to this, he also had a theory as to why Wright's LinkedIn account was suspended this month. Wright said it was because he was stating BTC is not Bitcoin and that certain violations of intellectual property rights should not occur is unprofessional and harassing people. Wright added that LinkedIn said he could come back if he promised not to talk about Bitcoin, among other rules he said were antitrust and made acceptable the IP theft that they are helping to promote. This he equated to like going to someone that has just been raped and telling them they should be friends with the rapist. Verkut Jr. leapt to Wright's defence, claiming that Greg Maxwell got MasterCard to delete Craig Wright's LinkedIn account today because dissent is too dangerous for the very, very fragile feelings of the small blocker mafia. Naturally, there was no evidence at all that this took place, mainly because it's utterly mad, and Wright was back on LinkedIn within a few days anyway, with the man who proclaimed in December 2021 that I am angry, I am bloody going to change society, and that nice Craig has left the building, would, in his terminology, make friends with the rapist in order to get himself back on the platform. Yeah, you show him, Craig. And now we come on to IBM Blockchain, where Mr. Nunes worked for almost 13 years, most recently as their blockchain go-to market global leader. Now, I don't profess to know exactly what that is, but what I do know is that IBM Blockchain uses a technology called Hedera Hashgraph. And guess who went on the record just two months ago to smack talk it? Basically, what Hashgraph is, is it's about equivalent of getting a wood chipper and putting your feet in after turning it on. All the shit goes out everywhere, and at the end, it's not terribly good. Now, that's about how well it works. In the idea level of sort of innovations, it's like getting a chainsaw and shoving it up your fucking ass and twirling <laughs> because you've got a hemorrhoid, okay? That works a little bit better than Hashgraph. So here we have a man who has had years of experience and I quote, helping IBM to create new blockchain networks as well as grow the active ones, among other things, now very likely working with Craig Wright to help, in Enchain's words, accelerate our market penetration and the uptake of our solutions. I imagine that first conversation around the water cooler is going to be a very interesting one. 
We'll end this month on an extraordinary piece from CoinGeek that went out on May 13th entitled In the Court, The Identity of Satoshi Nakamoto is Already a Foregone Conclusion. Now, we don't have the time and I don't have the resolve to point out all the inaccuracies and factual assumptions in this piece, but we'll run through the most grievous ones just for sport. It starts from the very first paragraph. The slate of lawsuits filed by Dr. Craig Wright against specific people and companies within the digital asset industry are often analysed as though they are a deliberate continuation of Dr. Wright's emergence as Satoshi Nakamoto in 2015, when media outlets Wired and Gizmodo revealed that a joint investigation had led them to believe that Dr. Wright is the elusive inventor of Bitcoin. Arthur, setting aside the fact that Kurt Vukert Jr. said a few weeks ago that Craig Wright didn't start legal proceedings against anyone... I don't recall Wide and Gizmodo working together on the Craig Wright story in 2015. In fact, I remember reading that one of them had to rush publication so as to not get beaten to the punch by the other, although I can't remember which way around this is. Also, the article fails to mention that both outlets later retracted their beliefs, pointing to the forgeries used in the evidence hall. No, uh, Mark, uh, these media outlets uh, did indeed not uh, join forces. It went exactly as you said. They were competing against each other for the opportunity uh, to break the story first of Craig Wright possibly being Satoshi Nakamoto. And remember, both Wired and Gizmodo received Craig's docs package in uh, November 2015, extremely likely from Craig Wright himself, as we discussed already in another episode of Dr. Bitcoin last year. And indeed, let there be no mistake about that, both Wired and Gizmodo retracted their initial December 2015 articles. They don't endorse the idea anymore that Craig might be Satoshi. CoinGeek's apparent evidence to back up their claim that Wright was desperate not to be outed as Satoshi were some emails entered into the Kleiman vs. Wright trial, which showed Wright telling Robert McGregor in November 2015 that some reporters were trying to get in touch with him over the supposed link and that they were looking for me in London right now. In the email, Wright says that he suspected an ex-staffer was selling the data from a stolen hard drive to the magazines, although he admits that he can't prove the data was stolen, merely saying that it's possible. Let's not forget that some 20 months before this, Wright had openly, and without prompting, emailed the father of his former associate Dave Kleiman to tell him that your son Dave and I are two of the three people behind Bitcoin, without once telling him that this information was private and that it should remain so. Also, don't forget that we suspect that Wright has never even met Louis Kleiman, and here he is telling him secrets he doesn't want anyone to find out. Arthur, while we're on this topic, this initial email is beautiful because it ticks every single box you would want to if you were planning a scam like this. In the space of a few lines, Wright references the stolen hard drive three times for extra emphasis, which plants the seed that this was done against his will. He mentions the emails between himself and Kleiman as being crucial to the Satoshi link, as well as the private keys, which helps to highlight exactly which bits of the evidence people should focus on when it comes out. He mentions that the emails start in 2007 where we discussed the idea of Bitcoin, which handily date stamps the time to when he supposedly started creating Bitcoin alone, let's not forget. And he mentions that some emails are digitally signed, which brings up Satoshi's PGP key that was also initially tied to write when the stories came out. Now, there is no reason at all for this much information to be in the initial email. Indeed, when Robert McGregor asks for more information, Wright can't give him any more because he's blurted it all out in the first one, presumably so it's on the record, as it were, right at the time that suits Craig Wright. What's your take on this email and the timing of it? 
Yeah, well, that email thread uh, dated November 2021 uh, fits the timeline of uh, Craig's Cell of Dogs nicely. We know Craig started shopping around with his homemade uh, dogs package in October 2015, first approached a few outlets uh, who didn't pay attention to it, and in November 2015, Wired and Gizmodo took the bait after all. Maybe because Craig had adjusted uh, the Cell of Dogs package with more material. We don't really know. CoinGeek doesn't show the full thread of the email in the article, but the actual exhibit from the Climate versus Right case showed that the very first email, and uh, in the thread of course found at the bottom, came from Andy Kush, who is a freelance writer, editor and musician living in New York City. He's currently a contributing editor at Pitchfork and previously worked at Gawker and Spin. So what we see here in the email thread is that Andy was at that moment, November 20, 2015, working at Gawker. So we can put Gawker also on the list of media outlets receiving the docs package in November 2015, and who started inquiring the truthfulness uh, of the thing. And we can see uh, Craig Wright anticipating nicely on the event of uh, Andy Kush from Gawker emailing him. He forwards this email to Kelvin Ayer, Stephen Matthews, and his wife Ramona. Hi Craig, this is Andy Kush again, one of the reporters who called about Bitcoin and Satoshi Nakamoto a few days ago. I've been in touch with some other sources who suspected that you and or Dave Kleiman had a role in its creation. And I would uh, very much uh, like to talk to you if you're interested. Thanks very much for your time. Andy Kush, Gawker. Now let's have a look in more detail what we see happening here. Craig Wright now has obtained hearsay evidence, quote-unquote, of him being Satoshi Nakamoto by anonymously providing the same evidence, quote-unquote, to the media who happily returned it to him. So, of course, Craig will then happily forward this hearsay evidence to the people that are supporting and sponsoring his lifestyle. Yeah, and then he tries to pretend this is all a shock and surprise when it all comes out. <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> and there you go, Mark. We unraveled uh, the whole December 2015 uh, docs scheme again, but uh, now from a different angle. That's fun. It's fun to revisit these things. So, CoinGeek also tried to use an email from Ira Kleiman to Andy Kush to claim that the pair were part of a conspiracy to outright as Satoshi in order to bolster Ira's lawsuit that was more than three years away. CoinGeek claims that the email shows that communication between the pair had already clearly been continuing for some time and took place on December 4, days before Gizmodo doxed Dr. Wright and the ATO raided his home in Australia at the exact same time. The email that CoinGeek uses is an unfortunate one for their argument, however, even from Ira Kleiman's opening lines. At the moment, I just don't see much of an upside for participating in your story, aside from satisfying my own curiosity about the information you have on my brother. I can only see downsides such as unwanted media coverage resulting in an upheaval of my family's life. The email continues in the same aloof fashion, discussing Bitcoin thefts and ending with Ira Kleiman saying that I want to learn the truth about it as much as you do, but I don't think I'm ready to meet with you right now. If you want to corroborate some things, you can ask me online and I'll do what I can. How on earth CoinGeek can contrive from such an email that communications between the pair had been continuing for some time is inconceivable, especially since the outlets only became aware of the story in October 2015 when the so-called evidence hall was aggressively shopped around. Arthur, CoinGeek also make a big deal of when this email was sent, but 
unless I'm being obtuse here, I can't see any link between Ira Kleiman saying he didn't want to participate in the Gizmodo story, the act of publication, and the ATO raid on Wright's house. Yeah, nope. <laughs> there isn't uh, any mark. None. The CoinGeek piece goes on to state that the Kleiman versus Wright case confirmed Wright's identity as Satoshi Nakamoto, which of course it didn't, while also claiming that the 2021 Cobra Bitcoin case ended in the English High Court recognising Dr. Wright's authorship of the Bitcoin white paper. While it is true that Wright won this case, it was a default judgment after Cobra Bitcoin put up no defence, citing concerns over his safety if he revealed his identity. This meant that Wright's evidence wasn't even looked at, let alone assessed, but of course it was claimed as a famous victory. When you're down that much, you take anything. The article then makes some astounding claims over Wright's ongoing court cases, Arthur, we'll tackle these one by one. Regarding the Peter McCormack case, CoinGeek claims that McCormack will defend himself later this month solely on the basis that the tweets did not cause any harm to Dr. Wright. This is true after the UK courts rejected three of the four defence pillars McCormack's team put forward. They continue, Here again, we see a case where the courts are treating Dr. Wright's status as Satoshi Nakamoto as a foregone conclusion. Is that true? No, of course not. Uh, as long as not any court declares or rules uh, Craig is Satoshi, it can only be implied by desperate uh, Factoshi fans. CoinGeek is feeding the narrative perfectly, but it's just not true. CoinGeek continues, Dr. Wright's opponents seem determined to avoid the same fate as McCormack. Rather than having to face up to Satoshi Nakamoto in court, they're running fast. As an aside, we tackled this in a prior episode where we recounted just how many times Wright's legal team tried to get out of the Kleiman versus Wright trial, even on the day Wright was slated to give evidence. He also folded against Adam Back and Vitalik Buterin before those cases reached court. CoinGeek continues. Roger Ver has been chased from jurisdiction to jurisdiction as Dr. Wright pursues that defamation case. Arthur, is this true? Well, no, not really. Uh, Roger Fur has been fighting uh, Craig Wright successfully uh, so far in the United Kingdom. Uh, Craig had no chance. His cake was uh, kicked out because of lack of merits. And then Craig uh, tried again from Antigua. But we don't know how that is going uh, currently. Roger Fur is also one of the parties uh, who successfully kicked uh, Craig back in the Pineapple Hack uh, case, which was also kicked out of the United Kingdom uh, courts because of lack of merits. And finally, we have the Hoddlenort case, where CoinGeek says that Hoddlenort tried a desperate and ultimately unsuccessful Hail Mary to avoid meeting him, right, in court. Is this true? Well, again, no, not really. Uh, Hoddlenort executed the same strategy that Craig Wright is also trying each and every time, trying to get the case kicked out of the United Kingdom based on uh, jurisdiction, so he could focus on the case that he started uh, against Craig Wright in uh, Norway. This indeed uh, didn't succeed, but it's more adequate to say that instead of trying to avoid Craig Wright, he is chasing Craig Wright under his own conditions. And what we see happening in Norway is that it is actually Craig who is desperately trying to delay the case as much as possible. CoinGeek signs off by saying that we're well past that point, as can be seen from the multitude of cases which have already recognised Dr. Wright's status as the inventor and intellectual property holder in Bitcoin. We really, really are not. That more or less wraps us up for this episode of Dr. Bitcoin. But Arthur, it's been a few weeks since we were last here. What's the BSV price been doing since we last spoke? <laughs> yeah, 
Not so good, Mark. <laughs> the BSV price was cut in half from roughly $100 to $50, and it even hit almost the all-time low of $42. To be fair, though, the whole market was down in the same period, and also Bitcoin, the real thing, lost some value from $45,000 to uh, roughly $30,000 currently. That's also a 33% uh, cut. But uh, denominated in uh, BTC, that's where we see that uh, BSV has been making uh, new all-time lows like uh, clockwork in the last uh, two months, ultimately leading to a lowest price of 0.0016 BTC on May the 12th. Since early 2020, BSV is on a long-term trajectory with only one direction, down, and the last two months have been no exception. Well, the way things are shaping up, I think the situation might be about to get worse for those beleaguered BSV holders. But don't forget, it's not about price, it's about utility. And there's still no bugger using it. That is uh, even more true than you might realize. If you look at uh, a website called bsvdata.com, the graph of usage is completely flat, almost zero. The flagships uh, Fix Gaming and um, CryptoFights are doing nothing they are down it's so sad to see oh i'm sure you're crying at bedtime <laughs> well not really <laughs> well um arthur thank you once again for your time and expertise yeah welcome as always mark and i'll see you again next month sure thing thank you for listening to this episode of dr bitcoin the man who wasn't satoshi nakamoto if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd love it if you could rate and even review us on your podcast app of choice to help us spread the word. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast too in order to get the episodes the moment they drop. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again soon. You've been listening to Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto. Written by Mark Hunter with additional material by Arthur Van Pelt. Editing and production by Mark Hunter. This has been a Contented Media Production.